Yesterday, we shared part two of an interview series I did last fall with an Azov soldier, Colsign Torque. This is part three, the almost final one because、um, we still haven't had the chance to dub and translate it. I know, I know, it's been a year. We're trying. In case you missed it in the last episode, Torque was born and raised in Mariupol. He is an active duty soldier with Azov Brigade, at the time of this interview, called Azov Regiment. He participated in the defense of Mariupol and Azovstal. Tork was in Russian captivity from mid-May until mid-June 2022, returning to Ukraine in a prisoner of war exchange. The following interview was conducted in October 2022, four months after his release. You can watch the video of the interview as well as the two preceding interviews on our YouTube channel. And we're planning to do a follow-up. We're just waiting to hear back from the Azov press service, so check back for that soon. Say it this way. Technically, we as wounded were supposed to get more opportunities to eat, but we had to push up on reality. The food had to be delivered somehow—food for 300 people—and there were specific units in charge of that. There were responsible for logistics, so to speak, for logistics of providing food to specific bunkers, and those guys were applauded every time they would run it. So it's the kind of situation where you're laying there and you understand. I'm, and I mean, I was in a room. So there was the overall bunker, and it had two, three rooms, and so I was in one of those rooms. And there was also the combined bunker, and so I hear all the applause, and I understand supposedly the food has arrived. So we all breathe out. Great, we're going to have some food now. And so that's why our portions were half a plastic cup. It's not surprising. So each day you either could get food or could not get food, and it totally depended on whether the guys would make it. Well, yeah, yeah, potentially, yeah. But if I'm not mistaken, there was only one day like that, or maybe not even, that we didn't get food. We had some reserves, like everyone could get a tuna can. Maybe not tuna. I don't know. Basically, fish. There were these tiny little cans, and they were kept there for doomsday. For the time when the guys might not be able to get there for one reason or another, maybe we got that tuna fish one time, or maybe not. Basically, there wasn't a day where we didn't get food at all. Well, only at our own accord. For instance, I have this one porridge that I love. It was just giving it away to my comrade with the words "Bon appetit." <laughs> Which one? I don't know. I think it's、uh, wheat or something. I call it chicken food. That's the type of stuff you give to chickens.、They're We're very happy when that porridge was on the menu. I wasn't. Because they had an extra portion because you didn't like.、It. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but did you not like? I mean, you were wounded, right? So if you didn't eat that day, you already had so little resources. Did that not like? Well, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, we were losing weight like there's no tomorrow. It's no secret to anyone. Up until the war, you're used to keeping fit. You're used to eating right. Now minus fitness, minus food, minus sleep. So your food is now energy drinks and some sort of a cliff bar, maybe some cheese and a couple crackers, and that's your full day. And it's not because you're not being fed; it's because you don't have time. You have a you have a combat task, and you have to fulfill it. Well, and sleep depends on the situation. At first, we had not. Ooh, wait a second. Give me a second. I have a really strong spasm in my leg, and I have to lay down. I'm trying not to breathe too loud. This wasn't very fun. Whatever you need, really. 
No, I've just been sitting here too long and it causes problems. The leg gets stiff. Is it like a nerve damage spasm or? No, the one nerve is damaged, one is contused, and so sometimes I get rapid shooting pains. So, like, really shooting pains. Everything's okay. I'll deal with it. Everything's great. You're called cyborgs for a reason, guys. No, come on. Everything's okay, Yule. Yeah, totally fine. No big deal at all. Peachy. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. Yeah, everything's fantastic. No need to lay down, sit down. No, no, no. It's all good. Shooting pains happen sometimes, situationally. Okay, I mean, I just want to make sure that everything is really fine. I just ran out and took a straight stand because you have to either rapidly get vertical or lay down. Yeah, it's, um, with this, sleeping is an issue. There are some nuances present here. So you're in rehab for all of these side effects post-injury, correct? No, right now I'm at the stage of eliminating contractions in my leg. Because for three months it was in this kind of position. And even if you try to push it that way by force of hand, it doesn't bend that way because the muscle is stiff. And now you've got to slowly work them out. Like, I can't, for instance, lift my foot up towards me because the nerve is contused. I mean, I can show you my foot, but I don't know if you need it or not. Some fully up to you. Basically, I have a crater in my leg. Half the muscle is gone, and so it has a cicatrix, and the muscle doesn't grow back there. So it also adds my inability to lift my foot. Because it's that muscle that lifts it, and after three months, it got atrophied. So if you were to compare both of my legs, one is much slimmer than the other. Both the shin and the hip. Uh-huh. I got it. So basically lots of different things to heal. Any time, food, sleep, physical therapy. Yep, that's exactly what we're, what we're doing. So is um, Azov taking care of all of this um, in this case? In this case, yeah. Right now, yeah. Of course. I mean, to some degree, the government is involved too. But first and foremost, you are Azov and Azov is you. You're a part of the family. And as I said earlier, after we were exchanged, all of the moms, sisters, wives, girlfriends are writing to the regiment asking, what do we do next? We have a service that deals with all of that, that stays in touch with the families, supports them, especially those who died or are still in captivity. And that's exactly what it is. You understand that you've been waited for. And you know that if anything happens, your loved ones are going to be taken care of. You're being cared for, nurtured back to health, as in, like, you know, no one's going to leave you alone to figure out, well, what's next? It's great. Yeah, of course. No, I mean, honestly, it's really, really cool. To be honest, it's more developed, as in, like, taking care of your own than in the American Army, as in the American Army doesn't have anything like this. Yeah, yeah. As I said, our entire military needs to have these reforms. NATO standards, for instance, need to be implemented. It's changing, but it requires time. Time and the change of generation, evidently. Because people are used to having... I mean, we have them everywhere. The non-combat officers are used to giving out orders, yet they've never seen the battlefield. Well, in our country, there's way less of that now because we've been cleaning that up. But in terms of support for servicemen, it's not a question of Euro integration per se. 
It's a question of traditions. Azov is traditions, its values, its family. And that's why specifically Azov for me. I mean, it's honestly really, really cool to hear that you, you know, you come back and you're being taken care of, that no one forgets about you. Because I think one of the biggest things that the Ukrainian population is worried about is how are veterans going to be treated by the government? Like what sort of programs are going to be created for the veterans and things like that, you know, things of that nature. Uh, well, yeah. In terms of government programs for veterans, I think that's most likely going to happen after the end of the war. We'll see. But yeah, I think there are a lot of questions to that regard, because on my own example, there are guys that have been exchanged already, guys that are still in captivity, those that are not with us anymore. Those who stood on the defense of Mariupol and participated in it. Whether they're dead, alive, in captivity, doesn't matter. They had a place to live in Mariupol, and now they don't. So, what now? Yeah, you were basically left with nothing. Yeah, and you got to understand that everybody has a family. Because, okay, you're young, for instance, and you say you have time to still save up for a new place to live. But what about your parents, that also don't have a place to live? Obviously, you had to get them out of Mariupol. So, regardless of whether the apartment's still there or whether it isn't. Yeah, so there are lots of questions about that, and what's going to happen next is unknown. Well, hopefully we're going to be able to solve it in uh, other ways, ways of internet funding. And as to the bunker, I think that's all I had to say about the bunker. Well, so the operations, I mean, actually speaking about surgeries, at first they were conducted in the OR while it was still intact, and they migrated into the overall hallway area. So that bunker at Azovstal, how many people were there, and what is its actual maximum capacity? Well, actually, there were a little more than 300 people, maybe 330, something like that. And to accommodate comfortably... That's specifically 300s, right? Yeah, of course. It's all wounded. I'm going to say it like this even. It's heavily wounded. And there was another bunker with lightly injured, so there were another 300 people in there. People that were able to walk. Let's say a broken arm, but it's healing. Or something's injured, but the person can take care of themselves. Doesn't mean they aren't properly injured at all. It just means they're mobile and can do things without assistance. So to comfortably accommodate people, and I mean, I'm not saying luxury conditions. It's a bunker, after all. I would say divided by four, so 60 to 70 people would fit in fine. Like you could be able to walk in between the beds, for instance, because in our case, you had to ask someone to get up and move in order to make way for you to get to another person. You had to literally step over them. I mean, it was people on top of each other. So you practically spent this entire time horizontally. Well, besides the bathroom breaks when you need them, and obviously with the food that we had, you didn't eat them very often. One was also not very possible because no one was mobile, and so the situation didn't call for it. We had other things to take care of. Um, how long were you in that bunker? One month on the dot. I got there on the 15th, and I was carried out of there on the 16th the next month. Did you have any understanding of what was going on in other parts of Azovstal? Yeah, of course. Some guys were visiting, and there were some guys coming over from my unit, from other units. As a rule, you know most of the people in the regiment. There's about 
1,500 of us. That's not that many people. Yeah, I was watching, I think, Vushnia's interview, and he was saying that in Azovstal there was this thing that all the people from Azov who haven't seen each other for three, four years all happened to be there, and it basically was like a high school reunion, obviously. Yeah, and you had some guys coming over to check in on their friends from their unit, and you would see them like, oh, hi. And it would be a guy that you served with in a different unit some time ago, or you were in the same prep course, or sports competitions, or you just know each other for one reason or another. They would come to see their guys and be like, oh, Torque, wow, hi, what are you doing here? Yeah, what am I doing here? I don't know, I'm on vacation, man. What else does anyone do here? I mean, realistically, we should have had way less people there, but we got to stick to reality. We didn't have any transportation means and we were under constant shelling. The territory of the plant was constantly hit. You mentioned that you were informed about what was happening in other bunkers. So what was the situation with civilians at that point? Like, which conditions were they in? Yeah, understood. Civilians had their own separate bunker. There was never a time they had to share it with the military. Everybody understood at, it's at minimum risk for civilians because a bird would be able to see that. I mean, a drone. It's a potential risk for the people, and no one was interested in doing that. They had their own routine, uh, their own food, dry rations. They also had porridge, uh, a mini kitchen. But their bunker was also shelled. There were still bombs landing on it. If I'm not mistaken, it was publicized. There was talk about it online. I think it was the end of April, maybe in the 20th. Don't take it as a fact. Uh, At that point, I didn't know what day it was. I just remember that guys came over and said that the civilian bunker was being shelled and that our side brought it up in the media. At that point, did you have connection to the outside world? Like... Did you have a cell phone on you or something? No, no, I didn't. I had one opportunity to connect because someone managed to get a satellite working. And I had an opportunity to text that I'm alive. And I didn't know whether my message made it or didn't. No one had any service besides, obviously, the headquarters. They had connection to civilization, so to speak. Because it's obviously necessary, and that's it. Okay, so at that point, you were horizontal the whole time. What did you do to entertain yourself? In order to stay sane, we just talked. I personally slept. Well, the guys would be laughing at me, because any time they would wake up, I would already be awake. You didn't know whether it was day or night. You're in a bunker. The lamp is on, so it's daytime. We had light thanks to the generator. Uh, It was maintained, and the light would go on for a couple of hours. So good on that part. Ventilators were on for those who had a chest wound. They would bring in a ventilator, turn it on, and obviously turn off everything else that was plugged in, like some kettles. And the guys that would wake up, it's just that I slept very little. I probably slept a couple of times a week, and only if I had some sedatives or something, so I could even fall asleep. Because at that point, I was getting delirious. My leg was bothering me a lot. It's trauma. You can't do anything about it. So we were talking, talking all the time. Constant stories, uh, some sort of like fantasies, like, oh, we're going to get out, we're going to get back. Everybody understood that it could end at any moment. A bomb can land, a steel plate will crush you. That's it, you're dead. Of course, it'd be nasty if you died slowly, that's unpleasant. Other than that, it's just constant talking, supporting each other, uh, first and foremost. The second someone started getting down, you'd immediately tell them, come on, dude, chin up. You're bringing everyone down, that's bad. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not realism. It's just straight pessimism. That's not going to result in anything good for anyone. So our task was to bring back to normal everyone who was demoralized. 
and keep up the general mood, so to speak. So to support the guys who aren't handling this very well. Yeah, of course. There was always someone who was dropping off, getting super demoralized. Doesn't mean that they were trying to take some steps in that direction. They were just like, oh, I think the end is near. We're done soon. They were getting discouraged, so to speak. I don't know. I personally met some really great guys from Azov. We didn't really know each other before. And they were from Lviv, which was really cool. Uh, they invited me to come visit. So it was constant talking about who wanted to go where, who wanted to fly where, who wanted to visit what place. It's always conversations about neutral subjects, like family, who has traveled where, who has seen what. So topics like that. We try to stay away from the topic of war because it's constantly, constantly, constantly. It'll drive you crazy. No one needed that. Anyone who had the head on their shoulders fully understood that we needed to distract ourselves. Yeah, it's a matter of your spirit. Like, it can cause yourself more harm by thinking about things that will bring you down. Well, and again, if we're talking about the regiment, the example that I'm giving right now is a vivid example of how, um, of love to your country, I guess. I guess you can say it that way. Because no one forced us. We didn't have to do this. You're in the regiment. The way it works with us, when you get in, you can't be forced out unless you yourself think that you are not worthy. Then you go knock on that door. The guys overall, if you ask any Azov servicemen about their prep and treatment, you will know that they weren't treated like it used to be in the Soviet Union. That's it. You're a soldier. Now go paint some fences. What fences? Your task is to be a warrior. you got to be a professional in combat. You have to prepare. You have to be physically fit. You can't do drugs or drink alcohol, at least during your work time at minimum. I mean, your days off are your days off, but everything has to be in moderation. All of this was highly eliminated, even in the smallest manifestations. It's actually an interesting point, a moment from captivity, the reason why they were picking on my call name. What haven't they made up about it? Oh, I can only imagine what they were making up, especially about the tattoos and everything. <laughs> well, yeah, they were really picking on my Ukraine out there. Of course they'd be picking on that. I mean, it's Nazism central. Um, but when you were in the bunker, did you understand how much, like, our government and the world was trying to get you out of there? No, no. I mean, of course we had moments of clarity when Redis came over and told us that everything was going to be okay and that we as wounded would be evacuated first. Yeah, so Redis came and visited. I spoke to him for like five minutes. I asked about my commander and how everything was going. And he said everything was going to be okay. First and foremost, we're going to get you and the 200s out, and then we're going to work on the rest of the guys. And then everything was starting to fall apart. We don't know all of the nuances because we were basically without service there. And we were told that, yeah, on the outside, no one forgot about us. But we had no opportunity to find out the extent of it. And of course, because you wanted to have faith. Like, I fully understood that mine are waiting for me, uh, and that we were being waited for. And a lot of regiment guys, I mean, those who served in the regiment and are now civilians who, for one reason or another, weren't able to come to Mariupol, uh, were thankfully alive at the time and serving in other units. Also, Azov as a rule, but in different structure, AFU per se, and like Kraken, uh, let's say that's also Azov. And so they were at the front, and they were our regiment guys. So I fully understood that they won't leave us behind. Uh, and, they, and they are going to consistently push for us and keep us in people's heads. So everything is going to be okay. That's the most important thing. Optimism. 
Did you hear about all of the rallies to extract you from Azovstal, that like the whole world at this point knew who you were and rallies were held worldwide? You had no idea about that? No, we were told the news. It's just no one knew how extensive and real it was. Today and now I understand it. And later, even when I was in Donetsk, same thing. No matter what they told us, you still wanted to believe. And then you'd get down and you'd tell yourself like, no, dude, no. Like at the minimum, I have a fiancé, and she should be pushing for me at the very least. I told her how and what to do. First adapt, and then push. That's it. Yeah, so either way, even without all of these public big events, there were people who wouldn't forget and would advocate for you till the last. Yeah, people who uh, would drill into the last opportunity. I would do the same thing. It's kind of what I'm trying to do now. When you can, when you can't, just always try to speak out, yell out. What else do you got to do? Okay, let's move on to how did you end up in Russian captivity? Well, there was a mass um, extraction from Azovstal. You can call it whatever you'd like. Everybody calls it what they see fit. Some get upset about some terminology of how to call it, but for particular reasons, you have to call it, well, let's just call it an extraction from Azovstal. Of the garrison of Mariupol. I personally was carried out. I wasn't mobile. I was on a stretcher. And from the very beginning, we were told that the wounded would be headed down to Novazovsk. Uh, and those who were intact would be sent to Lenivka, to the territory of the colony, obviously. Uh, but they were supposed to be treated under all the statutes of the Geneva Convention. In the evening, we got to Novazovsk. It was very dark at that point. And then we were told to get ready for the morning, because we were due for a long ride. Then we understood, well, that's it. We aren't going to any Novazovsk. And in the morning, we got going. No one told us uh, where to at first, so we thought we'd probably go to Russia. And we thought we were in for some trouble. Uh, but then... We got to Donetsk, so we got there, and we particularly as wounded loaded into a uh, rehabilitation center, so to speak. Uh, they brought in surgeons or therapists. I honestly don't know what their specialization, um, and so they were the ones to take care of us. How did they treat you there? So, as in when you arrived there, yep. Uh, question here. It depends on who specifically. Uh, there's a huge divide. Well, let's do it this way. So you get to this um, hospital, I mean, whatever you can call it, like a Russian hospital. Yeah, sure, let's call it that. So let's call it a Russian hospital for the POWs. So you get to this Russian hospital for the POWs. What condition was your leg in at that point? Was it operated on? Well, let's call it correctly. Uh, it's not necessarily operated on as much as my shrapnel was picked out. My leg was temponated and it was periodically switched out. Uh, it's been a month since the event, so my bones were growing back in the way they could. So, technically speaking, they were growing back. Well, we found out later that actually everything grew back in just fine. My heel didn't, but they say that shouldn't impact my walking. Right now my leg hurts, but there is no way to tell whether it's shrapnel or something else. So as to the doctors, they treated you like any other doctor would. I have no issues with the doctors. But the issue lays in this. We heard that there was supposed to be humanitarian aid delivered from the Red Cross. For us, as wounded in the form of medicine, bandaging materials, etc. They didn't have any bandaging materials to use on us. So when you were extracted from Azovstal, what were the conditions that you were told? Like, were you told that the Red Cross is guaranteeing your security and etc.? Yeah, yeah, of course. We were told, you know, the Red Cross, the UN, everything is going to be okay. So point blank that they guarantee your security, right? The most important thing that I remember very vividly is that we were told we were going to be able to call our relatives. Obviously, that's the first thing on everyone's minds. Everyone wanted us to call in and to find out what's next, or at least let them know that you're alive. 
not healthy, but alive. Then you see Donetsk people, Russian people, but you don't see anyone from the Red Cross. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There were local televisions, some sort of inspectors and filtrators for their own purposes, you know? I personally, at that time, as a POW, had not seen a single Red Cross representative. And now, when I read all of these articles that deny their claims to guarantee security for the POWs, it's such a circus, because they definitely did guarantee security at that time. Even if you look at the archival news now, I mean, in peacetime, you could laugh at it. But at this time, you don't really want to smile at it. There are thousands of guys who, well, weren't tricked into it, but made the decision strongly based on those particular factors. And then, that's what you got. And it's silence from there. It's not even that they can't provide guarantees. They can't even provide explanations, per se, about what happened on the 29th in Olenivka. Yeah, none of these organizations that were guaranteeing your security are really doing anything anymore. Neither are they trying to figure out what happened there. I mean, I think that they were trying to guarantee security. Then they figured that they can't because Russians are simply not going to let them do it. And so they kind of flushed themselves. I mean, it just looks like they jumped higher than they could handle. Yeah, yeah, they aimed too high. Way too high. So, uh, yeah, doctors treated us like any doctors would. Their task was to stabilize us. Their task was to keep us stable, basically to prevent deaths among the wounded. Uh, so basically, if someone had some complications, say gangrene, well, then you'd get amputated. Basically the same thing they do here. Uh, but the problem is that those doctors literally didn't have enough medicine. Well, obviously, they also didn't treat us like they wouldn't talk to us lovingly. If they work on that territory, then most likely their worldview is perverted, so to speak. If they can keep living there and enjoy their life. Were these doctors DNR doctors or particularly Russian? No, no, no. Those were from Donetsk. Russian. Russian doctors weren't there. Those were all pseudo-Ukrainians. Brainwashed. Brainwashed Ukrainians, basically. Well, yeah. Well, we were... Our bandages were swapped less frequently than they should have been. Not even because they didn't want to, but because they didn't have the materials. When we asked them about the humanitarian help from the Red Cross, they smiled and said, well, if we can at least get humanitarian help from Russia, we were kept in a, as I said, a rehabilitation facility. It's not meant for the restoration of POWs. It's supposed to be a uh, vacation facility for old ladies and gents to chill, to rest peacefully. It's on the outskirts of the city. They would rebandage us. I mean, someone who needed to be operated on life or death, they were operated on. Someone who could survive without surgery, they wouldn't bother. I'm guessing that's what they were told to do. I wouldn't know. So the conditions you were kept in basically purely allowed to just keep you alive, nothing more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was there a difference between how they treated you as Azov versus someone from, say, AFU in general? Yeah, understood. Um, coming from who? Personnel or security? There's a difference there. Well, both personnel and security. And also, what is security in this case? Security were the fighters. I mean, big word. Okay, fine. Fighters. It's the local population of the Mobics, recently mobilized, that serve in a unit responsible for guarding specific objects. In this particular case, for guarding the POWs. Uh, why Mobics? Well, because we don't really pose a high threat. Obviously, they took such primitive things as shoelaces from us. That's what they do to POWs, so we couldn't use it to strangle ourselves or someone else. Everything sharp, slicey, was also taken away, like nail scissors or clips. And as to the treatment of us from personnel, 
Well, of course. There were unique characters that spat on us, kicked us, and called us names. But you also gotta understand, you're in captivity, you're not on vacation, you're not at your home hospital. Not like I'm being fine-tuned right now. Those were the conditions you're in. They're very obvious and nobody paid attention to them. The doctors did their job. You didn't die. You weren't rotting. If you were, then you were treated. But again, we had such a deficit of all that. Like, I sincerely hope that they have figured it out and things are somewhat better now over there. Really hope the guys are getting better treatment, especially after everything that happened in Olenivka. Those guys were probably sent to the Donetsk, probably to the same facility. And the fact is, there were very, very limited resources there in providing help. Service personnel, if you can call them that. Nurses and stuff. No, no. Nurses were going to combine that with doctors. Uh, sanitary workers, uh, like those who bring you food and clean up. Well, each one was different, I'll say it that way. There are some people that are still there, and there are some people that are hopelessly brainwashed. Like, that's it. No return from there. And then there are people that are, well, not necessarily hoping that everything is going to come back the way it was, but rather don't want the Russian world. Mm-hmm. So there are like two camps of people, huh? Well, yeah, but those camps are unspoken. You can just feel it. That's the easiest way to say it. So the people that, after all of this, finally understood that they were lied to. I mean, very likely they understood it way before this, but for this reason or the other, obviously the brainwashed are catastrophic. Were you uh, alone in your hospital room? Uh, no, there were two of us. And he was also Azov, or...? Uh, yeah, Azov. Uh, he's just still in captivity, so I can't talk about him much. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. I just meant that you were at Azovstal together, so you knew him beforehand. I mean, no, we didn't know each other at Azovstal, but yeah. The only reason I'm asking is I'm just curious if he was Azov as well or a regular AFU. Yeah, I understand what you mean. As in uh, how they treated us. I mean, there was a difference, of course. Uh, At a minimum, a vivid example of Azov are the tattoos. Uh, My roommate, well, his body was clean. He didn't have many questions posed at him. Here, for instance, immediately. Ah, Azov, got it. What do you get? I don't get it. I heard how they talk to everyone else in the AFU. Obviously very different treatment, at least the words they use. Again, the problem here is stereotypes. Well, like any person that will talk to me will understand that you can't use me as such because you have nothing to pick on. You're not looking at the situation objectively. I'm telling them, don't watch Ukrainian media. Don't watch Russian media. Just watch something neutral. Look at American TV, European TV. Look at some independent bloggers who are going to express their own thoughts. Watch a regular video overview of, let's say, Mariupol, of what happened there. The funniest situations to me was when they asked, why did you come here to us to fight? And I tell them, I mean, I was always there in Mariupol. I was born there. I lived there for 27 years. I mean, at that point, 26. I celebrated my birthday in captivity, you know. Funsies. Yeah, I just woke up. Well, today I'm 27. Did your cellmate at least sing you happy birthday or something? (laughs) Well, yeah, you can call it that. Yeah, there was a huge difference in uh, treatment, but stereotypes played the largest role in it. An overview of uh, Azov was a primitive bunch of some negatively inclined people. And factually, it's an utmost combat-capable unit of specialists and professional warriors that were holding the defense for a very long period of time under astronomically... I don't even know how to describe these conditions deplorable conditions. Yeah, well, Russia has this thing, you know, the more they're afraid of you, the more propaganda resources they deploy on you, pretty much. Yeah, primitive accusations that we kill civilians, some other stuff. I told them, the planes flying over Mariupol are not Ukrainian, much less so Azov. 
We don't have Air Force. Yeah, it's the good old for eight years Azov was bombing Bombas, but it's like, where did Azov get the planes to bomb Donbass? Well, yeah, of course, it's a circus. You would think that even the most primitive people, but they gobble it up. They don't even eat it up, they gobble it. I mean, it's silly from all different sides, like our entire army doesn't have an air force, but, you know, Azov obviously does. Well, of course, yeah, well, in Azov, we don't really get that many opportunities to use equipment. We didn't even have that much equipment. What planes are you even talking about? When you're encircled and there's a ton of their APS, it's obvious that a Ukrainian plane isn't going to make it in. That pilot won't be completing a suicide mission, what's the point? This entire time that you were in Russian captivity, sorry, the Russian hospital for the POWs, uh, you were in an information vacuum, right? Propaganda in a vacuum. What were they telling you? News, some very peculiar news, that Kharkiv is Russia. Well, Kharkiv is a Republican now. Western Ukraine is Poland now. They didn't say anything about referendums for now, but maybe they just kept it for dessert. They decided not to spoil us with that information. Yeah, Poland has its eye on Western Ukraine. Let me put it this way. We didn't have proof that it wasn't so, but I personally have a brother in arms that used to serve in the regiment and then quit, and now restarted his service in Kraken. And I fully understood what kind of guys uh, serve in Kharkiv. I understood that no one was going to give it up without a fight, that the guys there were going to stand until the last man, the same way that we did in Mariupol. I mean, I'm not even going to the West being Poland. I don't know who they were expecting to feed this to, at least for their own selves. It wasn't for us, for sure. Oh, I think it was aimed at destroying morale, at least I think. No, no, no. I think it was most likely propaganda for them, for their own information. And they just parrot that information to us, like, oh, look, we saw in the news that Poland is annexing the West. And of course, we didn't have any proof that it wasn't that way, but all of it was taken as, are you for real? You didn't have an ability to talk to guys from other rooms, right? Because I understand. No, no, no. Because if someone was evacuated earlier or later, there would be like different types of information that you could exchange. No, we didn't have anybody evacuated. We just had that one extraction. If you're enjoying the episode, please rate us and leave a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to reach out to us via email at social at borlingen.media. That's B-O-R-L-I-N-G-O-N dot media.